So comparison can actually help us understand what we want. Again, we we tend to say, oh, I shouldn't be feeling that way. I shouldn't be comparing myself to that person. So I'm just going to shut that thought process down. But then we can't learn from that. You know, we might see someone who's really fit and say, I feel bad, but I'm just going to stop thinking about that person. But actually, that's a really big signal of like, you want to be fit too. And and you can be fit. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur. And I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Molly West Duffy. Molly is the co-author of the Wall Street Journal best-selling book, No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work. She is an expert in organizational development and leadership development. You may also recognize her from her highly popular Instagram page, at Liz and Molly, where her and her co-author, Liz Fosseline, share on all things life, mental health, feelings, and more. The occasion for today's chat is their latest book, Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay. And I think y'all are going to get so much out of this discussion. So with that said, let's get this conversation going and welcome Molly West Duffy to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Molly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Doug. Glad to be here. Yeah, I've been looking forward to to talking to you for a while. I really enjoyed the book, uh, Big Feelings, where... You and Liz essentially unpack like seven feelings that we all have uh, quite a hard time dealing with at times. You go through burnout, you talk about despair, you talk about comparison, perfectionism, um, uncertainty, regret, and anger, which I think all of these we've all struggled with or continue to struggle with on a daily basis. And I definitely, we're going to go deep into, as I said, uncertainty, burnout, and comparison. But before we do that, I know you've intertwined a lot of your own personal journey in the book. And I think it's quite admirable given that you were like at rock bottom in your life and you continued to persevere and write the book. So if you could just maybe explain like where you were at, like what were you, what was going on in your life when you started to write the book and then how you persevered like through that, like in working on something as deep and emotional as a book about emotional well-being. Mm, Yes. So this was fall of 2019. I had a lot of things going on. I had just moved to Los Angeles from New York. I didn't know anyone. I was very lonely. I was working at a job that I, I didn't really like, and it was remote before everyone was remote, so I felt really isolated from that. I was dealing with a lot of chronic pain, doctors couldn't figure it out. I had sort of given up hope that it would get better. I was dealing with some fertility issues. There was just so, so much going on. I stopped sleeping. I stopped really being able to to do anything. And I want, I didn't want to keep being alive. Um, it just, living was so painful. And those thoughts really scared me um, because I hadn't had them before. And I think when you haven't had those thoughts before, you're like, oh, you know, how do, how am I ever going to get through these thoughts? Because they're so scary and people don't talk about them that often and 
I couldn't read. I couldn't really take in any media except about people going through hard times. And I listened to a lot of podcasts about people talking about depression and suicidal thoughts. I, I read books uh, about that. And, and there was uh, there was some, but I, I wanted there to be more because it was like the only thing that I could sort of focus and, and concentrate on. And it did get better through therapy and medication and finding a new job and, you know, just time, honestly. Um, and in coming out of that in January of 2020, I had a conversation with my co-author, Liz, and she and I had written our first book together called No Hard Feelings. And she knew some of what was going on. And she had also been going through her own difficulties um, in terms of burnout and and health issues. And her father-in-law was dying of cancer. And and I said, you know, I'm really interested in writing a book about how people move through really difficult times and and less of a sort of like, you know, 10-step checklist, self-help type of book and more just people sharing what got them through, what worked for them, um, and being really honest about how hard it, it is and, and that it can take a lot of time to work through these things. So we pitched this idea in, in January 2020 to our editor, and this was pre-COVID. And they said, you know, yes, it's very heartfelt and all of that, but we don't really see a big audience for this. Like, who's going to want to read a book about difficult things? <laughs> and then so we said, okay. And then in June of 2020, they came back to us and they said, actually, everyone is going through difficult times right now. We'll, we'll buy that book. Um, so interesting how COVID, you know, reflected into that. But, you know, it was difficult to write. I, the, one of the chapters is about despair. And I talk really openly about that time period of feeling like I didn't want to keep living. And I was like actively pushing away suicidal thoughts. And it was really difficult to write about. And it still is difficult to talk about. But again, like, I think there's so much shame and guilt around those feelings. And there's just not enough stories of people who have had those thoughts and who have made it through. And there's there's lots of stories of, about people who haven't made it through. And I think those are really important stories, too, because not everyone does. But um, these, these things are more common than we think. And so I challenge myself. I'm a pretty private person, but I challenge myself to to try to share some of them. Yeah. And, and thank you so much again for your vulnerability, like openness and honesty about like everything that you just shared now. And then also in the book. And um, I know you talked about when you were in this, in the chapter on despair, you talked about like how you're typically are a private person and you don't share a lot of what you shared in the book or even now, like with a lot of people. So I can imagine just from my own experience, like sharing dark parts of my story that mm -hmm. there's a lot of anxiety and fear in that moment that goes along with that. And and now that you've kind of, I don't want to say gotten through it, but you're on the other side of, of publication with the book and you've had some time, you've probably gotten some feedback from it. Like, how are you feeling now about all of that, about coming public with some of the things that you were so afraid of sharing? I think the, the people who I found it hardest to think about sharing it with were actually like my cousins or, you know, like former colleagues, like people like because my family at that point knew enough of, you know, they didn't know all the details, but they knew a lot of the details of what was going on um, and close friends did. But like a lot of acquaintances didn't really know. And that was hardest to think about them. In some ways, it's easier to think about sharing it with a total stranger who I'll never meet who, you know, listens to a podcast about it. But but in sharing it with the world, you're sharing it with everyone, including those people who are closest 
to you. Um, so that was the hardest part. But honestly, it was it was okay. And they all reached out and said, you know, either I I didn't know or you know, thank you for sharing. People from all walks of life have reached out. I had a, a former colleague message me on LinkedIn who I hadn't talked to in probably 15 years. And he said, you know, I read that chapter and it really resonated with me. He had been going through some chronic health issues and he was like, I had totally had those same thoughts. And, you know, thank you for sharing and making us all feel less alone. Um, so, you know, it has been rewarding. I think it still takes emotional energy to talk about it, partially because it's still as I imagine with parts of your story too, Doug, it's still, they're still hard to think about and to think about the fact that you went through that and they're still very emotional and like close to my chest when I talk about them. And I also want to get talking about them right because it is a, you know, it's a life or death situation for some people. And so I really want to make sure that I'm choosing my words, you know, carefully and, and all of that. But I'm curious too, for you, like, you know, the first time that you told, you know, some of your backstory, and I know you talked about it other times on the podcast, like, was there fear around that? Yeah, there was like different levels of fear based on the audience that I told it to, I think. Mm -hmm. I think when I initially started to share my story, it was just with like my personal training clients who, you know, real, like didn't really know a, a lot about that side of my story. They knew I was overweight and they knew I had struggled with self-esteem, but they didn't know that like I was incarcerated and that's where I found fitness. And mm. I was horrified that I had this secret inside of me and that I was almost like hiding the truth from people when they would ask me about like how I found fitness and things like that. And I remember going up to a client that I had been training for a little while and we had gotten close and we had a great relationship and I was just on my heart to like just actually share openly and honestly. And part of me was like, all right, I'm gonna share what happened and this person is never gonna train with me again. And of course, like the fears, like you say in the book, like the the actual anxiety like outweighs whatever uncertainty it is that you're facing, right? Mm -hmm. Um and so my thought process was I'm going to share this and then no one's going to ever want to train with me because <laughs> I was I was a former criminal, right? And the opposite actually happened, which typically does with stuff like this, right? Where I shared it and the person was like, you know, I thought the world of you before you said that. And I think like 10 times more of you after telling me that. And, and it, it inspired me and it definitely made me feel good. And then when I wrote my first book, From Felony to Fitness to Free, I was self-published. So it wasn't like I, I didn't think the book was going to be read by, you know, 100,000 people or whatever, and it mm -hmm. still hasn't been. So that level of fear still was fairly small because I'm like, I'm self-publishing it. I'm just getting it out there as mo more of like my own emotional therapy. And then people read it and, and they enjoyed it, but it wasn't like this massive audience. And then when I started to share on like massive podcasts, then the fear like opened up a little bit. And and the biggest one I think was the Today Show came and spent two days uh, with me here and filmed like mm. a, a little like documentary on my story and it came out to like be this like they followed me around for two days and it ended up being like the seven minute uh, video on my story and when that got released like there was a lot of angst because now it was everywhere like the Today Show is a massive outlet right yeah. and it's on like the it was like front and center of like the health and wellness section or whatever on their website and it was on their Facebook page it was like everywhere like online. And there was a lot of fear there, but then my fears quickly got conquered when I realized that a like it was a it was a great story and 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 it helped people, and b 
I realized that if people were judging me based on my past and they weren't meant to be with me in my future. Mm. And that's nice. something I, I try to keep in mind now. And and so like that's obviously built this. We, I know you talk about resiliency in the book, but this has built this resiliency muscle with me that now when I share, like it's it's so much easier than than day one because I've now got some some reps under my belt and stuff like that. And I guess to continue on like downstream of our conversation with your book, what I noticed is a lot of these emotions and feelings you talk about, they're so intertwined, right? Yes. And we talk about, you talked about despair. And I think one of the things that parallels despair is uncertainty. And in so many people, they, they find themselves in moments of sadness, in moments of anxiety and and fear, like when they're uncertain. So talk a bit yes. about uncertainty, like why you thought it was so important to cover this topic. And then um, like what you like at the end of the end of the day, like what do you hope what are you what are you hoping for people to get out of that part of the book? Uncertainty is we put it as chapter one in the book because it's probably the most one it's the one that people most readily identify with. I don't know if it's the most common, but certainly in this moment in 2022, everyone is feeling uncertainty. And one of the things that I think is is helpful for for people to know is that and you mentioned it earlier, like uncertainty is not an accurate predictor of actually how bad things are going to be or our level of anxiety about things is not always a predictor of how bad things are going to be. So, you know, one of there's a great research study that um, I don't know why all these like psychology research studies have to do with giving people shocks, but a lot of them do. <laughs> um, and so they said, OK, you know, to one group, they said there's a 99 percent chance that we're going to give you a shock, a you know, safe but painful shock. And to the other group, they said, we're, there's a 1% chance we're going to give you a safe but painful shock. And both groups were willing to pay about equal to get rid of the chance, even mm. though one had a 99% chance and one had a 1% chance. So what that tells us is like, we just don't like that there is a chance that it could happen. Um, and in fact, it's sometimes easier if we just know the bad thing is going to happen. We're like, okay, great. I can prepare for that. You know, if I know it's coming, I'll just get ready for that shock. But I don't want to know that it might be coming. And that's really hard hard for us as humans. So, you know, I think translating the anxiety into specific fear can be helpful. Um, so anxiety is when we feel that like 100 bad things could potentially happen. And fear is we're afraid of one bad thing, one in particular bad thing. And actually fears are easier to deal with because they are specific. So it's thinking through with this generalized anxiety, what specifically am I afraid of? Like, what do I actually imagine could happen? And and what would those scenarios actually look and feel like? And that can help us break it down a little bit. The other piece of advice that we give is is around using the phrase, I am a person learning to blank. So that in the case of, you know, being at work and COVID, you know, people might be saying, I don't know how to manage people in a hybrid world. Like, I can't do this. And then you say to yourself, I'm a person who's learning how to be a manager in a hybrid context. Or, you know, um, I feel so lonely, like I shouldn't have moved to Los Angeles. I'm a person learning how to make friends in Los Angeles. And that helps us, that gives us a little space to say like, yeah, it's okay. You know, I'm learning how to do it. 
If you suffer from digestive issues like gas, bloating, cramping, even when you're eating healthy, nutritious foods, then you could probably benefit from a high-quality enzyme. If you've never tried enzymes, or even if you've tried and they haven't worked, I want you to give this one a chance. As you know, I'm a big fan of the company Bioptimizers. They are one of the few supplement companies who have the best formulations and use the highest quality ingredients and their products work. I asked them if we could organize a great deal for all of my listeners, and they over-delivered. Right now, you can get a bottle of Mazimes for free. All you need to do is pay a small shipping fee, and there's no catch. There's no tricks, no forced continuity, and nothing to cancel. They are so confident in their products that they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee, so I'm positive you'll be satisfied with the results. Mazimes is a 17-enzyme full-spectrum formula, plus it contains all the key enzymes needed for optimal digestion. So many individuals suffer from digestive issues because any protein your body doesn't break down can lead to digestive distress, gas, bloating, and constipation. Mazimes can help ensure that all the protein that you consume breaks down into absorbable amino acids. So I strongly suggest that you head on over to their site to grab your bottle before they either run out or take down this offer. Go to mazimes.com slash Doug Free. That's M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot com forward slash Doug Free, which is all one word. And you will automatically get access to your unique coupon code to claim your free bottle. Limit one per household. Offer is valid while supplies last. You're going to love their products. So go now. Now let's get back to the show. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I like how tactical you guys got in that chapter on like like learning how to to deal with like the uncertainty of things and you broke it down into like almost like identifying like the certain fears around these uncertainties like you kind of just alluded to a minute ago. I want to go into some of the myths you talked about and specifically mm -hmm. talking about resilience because there's like resilience is like the same. It's a buzzword, much like the word like toxic is right now <laughs> where it's it's used uh, quite a bit. And I'm a fan of resiliency and I, and I think you have to be resilient to be able to, um, to thrive in life. I mean, it's just my personal opinion. But if you could just explain like why you you, you loop that in to, to the myths of uncertainty and then how there's different types of resiliences that can mean different things. Uh, so one of the myths around uncertainty that we talk about is like, you know, you just need to be more resilient. And a lot of that, you know, and I we agree. I mean, we're, we're fans of resilience, but it feels sort of like a cop out when your workplace or society is like, yeah, there's a lot going on. And the solve to that is that everyone just has to be more resilient. <laughs> Um, so it's presented in a way that can overlook some of the systemic or organizational problems and just encourages people to, you know, you're an individual, you have to suffer through it, grin and bear, whatever tough stuff, you know, you're dealing with. And I think especially when you're dealing with a big feeling, being told to look on the bright side or just, you know, be resilient can be frustrating because for the most part, you're already trying to do that. Like, <laughs> you know, when I was in the middle of despair, when you're in the middle of, of grief or um, dealing with a lot of anger, it's like, yeah, like I'm, tr I'm trying my hardest. Like I just, I don't have the skill set yet to do it or I don't have the support to, to do it, but you know, I, I am trying to be resilient. Um, and I think we talk about it specifically around, you know, institution, society at large, less so in the context of, of maybe some of the more personal emotions that are going on. Um, 
So again, we're proponents of resilience, but not the kind that places blame on the individual or absolves leaders and institutions from making you know structural improvements. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so true, right? Because the whole like just suck it up and deal with it. Like I think it does like have its place. Like for me, I res- I respond well to that. Like mm. I respond to the tough love. It's just I don't know. I just am wired that I like to be just like told like hard things like in the moment, and I just do it. But I have also learned that there needs to be space for just feeling the feelings and just going through it and understanding like what's going on at the root of it and unpacking like why I respond a certain way. And I think that that in turn can help people deal with uncertainty in a in a more intentional way as they move forward with their life, if they're learning like why these fears are coming up like for them specifically. And it's what's interesting is that we spend, I, don't, I mean, I'm just making this up, but just to provide context, like 98% of the time, we or not, we spend like 98% of our energy, like focusing on the things we can't control. <laughs> and we spend like 2% of our energy focusing on the things we can control. And what happens is when we focus all of our time on the things that we can't control, the things that we can control tend to fall apart, right? With health, relationships, uh, sleep, um, stuff like that. So for you personally, like you've dealt with a lot of uncertainty, be it whether it's just your your own personal struggles that you were talking about earlier, uh, infertility, making new friends um, when you were in LA, like what's something like since you've written the book that you've, you've had to go through where you were feeling uncertain and then did you use some of the tools in the book or if not, like what did you do to, to kind of mitigate that feeling to get through it in a healthy way? Yeah, in the book, we talk about separating the withins from the beyond. So as you said, like, what are the things that you can control and what are the things that you can't? And the things that are within your control, it is important to make plans. And I'll talk about what that looks like for me, but also make plans from which you'll deviate. Because mm-hmm. part of what's hard, you know, it's like, OK, well, I, I have control over this thing. And you do probably have control over some of it, but then the world can come in and mess up those plans. And if you're like, ah, like I had this plan and now it's messed up by, you know, the timing of COVID or whatever, and it's you you don't have some flexibility around that, that can be challenging. Um, so for my own life, like I'm, I'm recovering from a lot of um, chronic tendon injuries and they are getting better, but it really just takes a long time. Like the healing process is very slow. And I can't control that. And I would really like to be able to, <laughs> like, say, I will be better. You know, if I work hard enough, like, these injuries will be better in a year or two years or whatever. And and I've had to let go and say, like, the timeline is outside of my control. But what is in my control is that I continue to work with it. And, you know, a quote that I, I think about a lot, a lot is start where you are. You know, where am I today? And what can I do? in physical therapy, in um, you know my own exercise routine and pushing myself just like a little bit harder, that's what I have control over. But when I think about you know putting deadlines into myself and saying like, okay, you have to be fully recovered by this date, that is not helpful because that is beyond my control. And that can actually make me try to like speed things up, which makes me get re-injured or it can make my, me get really frustrated and demotivated because I'm like not meeting my goals. Uh, I'm sure you see some of this with, you know, yourself and your your clients too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, because at the end of the day, like 
it's it's this dance right between focusing on what we can control and then like managing that inner critic or that whatever you call it that voice inside of our head that's like you're not moving fast enough or this isn't going to happen or like i can't believe you're not seeing more success and what i always tell people and i've said this a lot is that any kind of transformation sucks mm. horrible takes a lot of hard work, it takes dedication, it takes perseverance, it takes like accepting the days when you're not feeling good, it takes just moving forward even if you have to freaking crawl, like it takes a lot of that. And it, and it's hard and it's challenging and it takes a lot of energy, but you know what else like sucks, like really bad is quitting and and yes. not reach and not making that transformation. And it's like we're faced with this choice that can be very freaking hard, mind you, at this like, you know, junction that we're at sometimes when we plateau on a certain goal. But it's like, you have to ask yourself, like, who do you want to be? Do you want to be the person that quit? And five, six, seven months later is looking at yourself in the mirror and just completely ashamed and, and regretful because of the setback that you quitting has, you know, created in your life. Or do you want to be that person that persevered and got through it? And that, and at the end of that time period in five, six, seven months is like, Jesus, like that took a lot out of me. Like, like that took so much work, energy, and just life out of me. But look where I am now. Look at all these lessons I've learned. Look how much stronger I am. And this is going to carry on with me as I as I move forward. And you see this, and you see this a lot in life. And I just encourage people that if they've hit this point in their life where they feel stuck or they feel like something's not moving fast enough, like like quitting just completely counts you out. And you just gotta keep going like one foot in front of the other. It can be so demoralizing when you're like, okay, I'm not as far as I want, or I put in so much effort and I'm still not done with this. I mean, there's, there'll never be a done in life, but you know, um, there's a great illustration. So my co-author Liz is an illustrator and she has all these illustrations throughout the book and she has this illustration. The first scene is this person sitting on a set of stairs saying, I'm still so far from the top. Mm. And then the next scene is zooming out and you see the person is on a staircase and they're like three quarters of the way up that staircase. <laughs> And it's like, we we discount that a lot of looking back and seeing how far we've come because, you know, there's still a lot to go. And it's, and for me, again, with dealing with these injuries, like, I don't know, like, I can't say to myself, oh, I'm like 50% of the way there because that's not how injuries work. Like pain is binary. You either have it or you don't, you know, but I, but I have to remind myself I have made progress because I can do more on a day-to-day -day basis without pain. And I think sometimes the people around us see it, see it more than, than we can. But again, it's just, you know, I cannot control the timeline. I can't make my tendons heal faster than they are going to heal. So all I have control over is that this week was a little better than last week. And this month was a little bit better than last month. And that, you know, there's going to be ups and downs, but that the trajectory, the trend line is positive. Yeah. It's just kind of like, um, like saving for retirement. Like there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs, there's yes. going to be big ups, there's going to be big downs. But if you look at the trajectory over like a, a 30 year period, if you keep at it, like you're going to be a lot better 30 years from now than you were when, when you started. So I think it's, um, and it's a good segue, I think, into the next thing I want to talk about. And that's comparison, because I think a lot of times when we're at these moments, these, these roadblocks, like we're talking about, in many cases, we're comparing our chapter one or where we are to in our life to somebody 
we see on social media or to our neighbor or whoever. So let's dive into comparison. And I, and I want to yeah. open up with with a myth because I think this is something that's important for people to hear so that because it really when we go into this, it's going to really shock people because it's going to essentially like force people to take some more accountability and responsibility for why they're feeling a certain way. And, and, and the myth is that in order to feel better about yourself and stop comparing yourself to people on social media, the answer is to, to delete the app. So if you could share like why that's a myth and how that can actually like impede progress when trying to have a healthy relationship with comparison. So getting rid of social media in, can sometimes help or limiting access and we can talk more about that. But it's not going to make the feeling of comparison or jealousy or envy totally disappear. And the reason for that is we live in a modern world where even if we're not going on Instagram, we still are going to see how other people are doing. You know, people are going to text you photos. You're I'm going to see, you know, run into people. You're going to see, you know, celebrity news when you're in the grocery store. Like you're still going to feel like other people are doing better than you because there's just so many inputs into our lives these days. Um, and it's really hardwired. So they, there's research that's looked at other animals. There's a great study um, that looks at monkeys. And when when monkeys were given food, they were happy. But then when they were given food and the person, the monkey next to them was given a better food, better monkey food, they were suddenly really upset. <laughs> and so like this stuff is really hardwired. Um, and there's a reason for that, which is that we can learn from it. So comparison can actually help us understand what we want. Again, we we tend to say, oh, I shouldn't be feeling that way. I shouldn't be comparing myself to that person. So I'm just going to shut that thought process down. But then we can't learn from that. Um, so often, you know, we might see someone who's really fit and say, you know, well, uh, I feel bad, but I'm just going to stop thinking about that person. But actually, that's a really big signal of like, you want to be fit too. And and you can be fit. Um, so usually this stuff is not like a zero sum game. We think like, well, that person has it, so I can't have it. But actually, like any person can have some of these these things. Um and just to go back to what I said, you know, in the beginning, like I, I do think that that understanding, like, what are your unique comparison triggers, and when you should avoid those things. So, like, you know, if you're feeling really down, it's probably not the best time to go spend an hour on Facebook. <laughs> like, right. You know, it doesn't mean you have to delete Facebook, but like that's just you know and. And there's data that shows that, that people spend like, you know, two times more time on Facebook after a breakup. And it, it, it's like, it just feels easy to do. It's sort of like, oh, like this is going to make me feel better. But then after you're done, you're like, now I feel worse. So setting boundaries for yourself. Um, and I, I deleted Instagram on my phone, so I didn't, you know, fully go off of it. But and I felt a lot better just not having it on there for a period of, you know, about six months a year. And, and now I've slowly been, you know, adding it back in. But that was helpful for me. Right. I, I believe that, like, we, we live in a society where we're always looking for these quick fixes and we're looking for somebody else <laughs> to fix the problem for us. And just in this example, we're looking for Instagram to fix the problem for us. We're like, all right, I'm just going to delete Instagram. And because I'm, I'm without Instagram, now all of my problems are going to go away. And I think it ha if you're going to do that, I think, and I, we've talked, I've talked with, with people on here about like breaking up with social media and like the process mm -hmm. behind it. And I think it needs to be 
like multifaceted where, okay, delete the app. Cool. But now like do the inner work, go to some therapy or whatever, like emotional support system works for you and like unpack, like why it bothered you so much to see somebody getting married. Like why it bothered you so much to see somebody who bought a house. Like why did that bother you? Like don't blame Instagram for triggering, like blame yes. like if you have to take some responsibility and accountability because once you give up that and once you like relinquish power and control over to, to somebody else, like you lose like 100% mm -hmm. of the time. And I know it's hard, it sucks, but I think that's like, that's the ultimate hack, right? Is being comfortable with looking at yourself in the mirror and saying like, what was it about me that contributed to these negative emotions that I was experiencing? And we, one of the other myths you talked about was that actually comparison can be healthy. So, and I think this is, this is brilliant because you kind of touched on this. Like if I see somebody um, who just ran, if I saw one of my friends who just ran a marathon, I'm like, gosh, like maybe I should do that. Or if I see somebody start a podcast, like maybe I should do that, which is kind of like how I started this. But with all that said, if you could unpack like in your experience and why you decided to include that as a myth as to why comparison can actually be healthy and how it can be healthy, I think people would really appreciate that. So, I mean, it's sort of to combine the two things that you just said, I think you're absolutely right in that feeling of like seeing somebody just bought a house and they're posting about it online or um, they just got married or they had kids or whatever it is. It's like that can feel like a punch in the gut. I mean, I have been there and you're just like, wow, like I just had like a you know physical reaction to seeing this thing. Right. And it's like, then we say, okay, I'm gonna forget about it. But we're really missing, which is like that app or whatever it is, is giving us a huge amount of feedback that that's something that we want. And it's also giving us feedback about the emotional state that we are in, to your point, which is like, maybe I do need to go talk to a therapist about this. So when when all of this stuff was going on, I, I'm in my mid thirties, everyone is having kids and um, every other photo was like somebody pregnant or having a kid. And it was like really hard to keep seeing those things. And so what I worked on in therapy was getting okay with like, well, maybe, you know, what would it look like if I didn't have children? Would I still be okay? Would I still be able to live a happy life? And I it took months of like working on that and being like, I still would be able to be a happy person and have a happy life, even if I don't have children. Now, I still want to have children. I still hope that that happens sometime in the future, but it did take inner work. And that helped me then to be able to deal with some of the stuff that I saw on social media. Or, so that's one sort of answer to it. It's like, go do the work to let you decide like, you know, why do you want that thing? Do you actually want that thing? And then if you do actually want that thing, you know, is it in your power to do it? So for me, it wasn't in my power in that moment to be like, okay, I'm going to get immediately pregnant. So so what, what is the mental work I need to do around that? But for some people, it's like, yeah, I do want to buy a house. And there are steps that I can take in terms of saving or finding a real estate agent or, or you know, looking in a less expensive city or all, all of these things. Um, and so the, the example that we give um, in the book is, is about a writer, Gretchen Rubin. She wrote the book, The Happiness Project. And She's great. We love her. So she talks about how she was a lawyer, very, very accomplished lawyer. She was clerking for the Supreme Court and she was looking through her law school's alumni magazine and 
she skipped past like all of the you know other lawyers and she was looking at the people who were saying that they were currently writers and she was like i felt really envious of people who were writers and you know she had this like sort of stomach drop moment and that helped her like think you know oh maybe i should go become a writer which was a really big move to take like to leave you know her current job you know to um get a book contract like all of those things are really hard but that envy was the motivating factor for her to make that change. And so again, like when we go back to why do we have these emotions? Like why is biology making us feel so bad? There is a reason, which is that it can be a really motivating factor. Right, like I think a lot of these emotions that you we, you talk about in the book, they can have like positive or negative consequences, right? Like I think un uncertainty can can drive us to maybe work a little harder to provide provide more for our family uncertainty can drive us to like spend more time with loved ones because we don't know when the last time we'll see them again the same thing goes with anger like anger could be like a really good where it lights a fire in your belly to to change like a lot of times in our lives like like we, we make a change and we're freaking angry like we've had enough right <laughs> i mean at least i mean at least for me um speaking um and and I can go on with other examples from the emotions that you that you talk about, and I think when it comes to to envy, like you, you got to use envy to your advantage, right? Like you can use envy to like let it ruin relationships, or you can use it to like unpack, like you said, like what is it about this that is bothering me, and and is it something that I that I really want, and then do the work around that. So like I, I want to get tactical when it comes to. To comparison like we, we've touched on like why it could be healthy to compare yourself to other people and then like the social media aspect for but like you, you talked about how you dealt with it yourself and one of the things that you did was you kind of removed social media and you know set some boundaries with that but when you find yourself now like comparing yourself um maybe, maybe it's on social media maybe it's not maybe it's just like you feel that you maybe haven't sold as many books as you wanted to or you're not as far along like in your personal life or whatever it is like like how do you how do you navigate that on a day-to-day -day basis uh, yeah i i still am dealing with it i mean <laughs> that's one of the things in the book where we're like to be clear it's not that we now never feel these emotions we still feel them all the time <laughs> um but you know hopefully we know how to sit with them a little bit more but yeah I, I mean i'll share a story i don't think i've shared this yet publicly um so my co-author liz is pregnant and she's due um in about a month end of july so she knew about you know my feelings about this and i you know we had written this book and we had i had talked about how hard it was for me to hear that friends were getting pregnant and she told me about it and i had and still i had that gut reaction i was just like oh wow like i you know i didn't expect that and of course, I immediately go to like, what does that mean for me? You know, selfishly, yeah. I'm like, we're not, we're not gonna be on the same timeline. And like, you know, and so I felt bad because I wasn't really able to be like there with her in the moment and be happy for her. But the other thing that I knew from just going through this so many times was I was like, I am having a really strong reaction to this and it is going to fade. And I just need to get through, you know, like, I, I felt really bad like the, the night that she told me and the next day I was still really like sort of stewing over it 
And then I was able to calm down a little bit about it. And then we had a conversation about it once I had calmed down. And I said, you know, I'm really glad that you told me. Like, of course, I'm so happy for you. And I'm not trying to make this about me. But it is really hard for me to hear that. And we were able to have an honest and open conversation um, about that, which helped. And I think because I had already done this work in therapy, I knew why I was feeling that. And I knew, like what I was and wasn't gonna be able to do about it. And he's like, yes, like th the reason I'm feeling like this is because I want this and I'm not able to have that right now. But that doesn't mean that I'm never gonna be able to have it. And, and even if I don't have it, I'm still gonna be able to be a happy person. Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think, I mean, first of all, I just wanna say like, thank you so much for opening up and, and sharing that story because I'm sure it, got a, it had to be like challenging both from a personal level and then from a friendship level as far as like what you all have done together and continue to do together to be able to talk about like something like that and and just being able to unpack like why it it bothered you so much and then how, what's a healthy path forward um with it and um yeah i think we, we all are, are continuing to struggle with comparison in, in certain levels when we um like are living day to day and it's just about being aware of it like understanding why and then like really doing the work um whatever that looks like for anybody listening to this to figure out like how can this be used to our advantage to become a better person as a result of it and i want i told you at the beginning i want to dive deep into three things because these are the most these are the three most requested feelings after i pulled my audience with um mm -hmm. what we're talking about now we talked about uncertainty we went pretty deep into that we just spent some a good bit of time talking about comparison and now I want to go into something that has been probably the biggest struggle for me recently is burnout, I guess. So I want, I want to start with you and we can, if you want to ask me some questions about it, feel free, but I want to like with, with in your context. So like, why was burnout a, a staple part of the book? And then if you could explain like what burnout is and what burnout isn't. Well, honestly, the reason that we put it in sort of the middle of the book is just that there's a lot that's been written about it. And there's some great books that have come out recently we love. There's a book called Burnout by the Nagoski sisters, um, which we recommend. And so we just we didn't want to open with it because it was like this is a really important big emotion, but it's not the only emotion that we're going to cover. So there's a, <laughs> we have a whole other conversation about how we think about structuring uh, chapters within this book. So I'm curious for you to share a little bit more about how you know that you are burning out and what are some of those early warning signals for you? I mean, I think when I, for me, like when I feel burned out, I can feel myself just not being able to think clearly, like my cognition will be down. Um, I'll notice my sleep will be off, which I think sleep obviously plays into burnout. Cause if you're not sleeping well, you're going to get burned out probably quicker. Uh, I'll lose like some motivation to do like things that I would normally like to do. I mean, I still will do them, but it just becomes that much harder. Uh, I find myself more anxious, irritable, and almost like second guessing myself. Mm, interesting. Where yeah. when I'm like at optimum energy and optimum like performance like i feel very e even keel and in flow as i'm moving about like day-to-day -day stuff all of those are are very much early warning signs for for many of us um and i think we know that we're headed towards burnout we we you know have some of these subtle signs that are happening and yet 
for many of us, we don't actually take action until it's like, oh, it's bad. <laughs> like, And I had this happen after our first book came out. I was working a full-time job, launching a book. We were thinking about moving to a new city. I was dealing with some health stuff. Um, there was just like a lot going on. And I knew that it was coming because I had like gotten, I had gotten a cold that turned into a flu and like I wasn't sleeping. I was having a lot of anxiety, but I was like, well, I'll deal with that, you know, after the book tour is done. Cause like, I just have to get through this right now. And by the time I dealt with it, I was totally falling apart and I had to say no to a bunch of things. So Liz had to take over. Um, a lot of the book events because I just like I can't do it. I I just like hit a wall. And so we we think that addressing burnout isn't urgent if you're not literally falling apart because you're distracted. And sometimes it can even feel good. It's like, well, I'm running on adrenaline, like I'm getting things done. I'm checking things off of my list. <laughs> um, but those early warning signs are so crucial to listen to. Another really common one is people saying, I kind of wish I would get sick, like not COVID sick, but just like a cold sick because that would force me to slow down or shut down or whatever it is. And when you're like wanting to get sick, that you're not in a good mental space. Um, So recognizing those early warning signs is super important. And then addressing them. And that's going to look different for every person. So we talk in the book about everyone's burnout is not the same. And there's there's actually clinical measure of burnout that measures three things. So one is exhaustion, which is like you feel constantly depleted. And that's some of what you were describing. And, and for many people, that's like the number one thing. But there's also two other components. There's a component that's called cynicism, which is where you feel really detached from your job and the people around you. So a lot of people experience this during COVID. And it's like, well, I, I, I never see people. Why do I care about this job? And that can lead to burnout. And then the third is ineffectiveness. So the feeling that you're never able to do a good enough job. You may actually be doing a good enough job, but you don't feel like you're being effective. So you feel like I'm trying really hard and nothing's changing. So, you know, each of those things, there's different things to shift. But for the for most people, and since you said it's it's really around exhaustion and, and feeling depleted, one of the biggest things is trying to take a look at your calendar. Our calendars run our lives. <laughs> and when I look at my week and I see a couple days of back-to-back things with no breaks in between, I say, that is not being kind to myself. How can I use my calendar to be more kind to myself? And that might mean rescheduling things, pushing them back, um, adding in more break times throughout the day. And, and it feels bad sometimes to do that because we want to, you know, we don't want to move things on other people. But then you think about how many times people have moved things on you and you're like, yeah, that's fine. That's actually better for me to do it next week because this week is really busy. And so it's this constant cycle. And you might do a really good job with that one month and then the next month everything falls to pieces. And so it's like it's like getting your your oil changed or brushing your teeth. It's like we have to continually work on this and push things back and move things off of our calendar. Otherwise, things build up and then we're you know we push towards burnout. And I want to get it. We're going to get more into this because I think we've 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 barely like touched the surface on burnout. But as far as like the rescheduling and and canceling and prioritizing our own calendars, like like what's the what's the proper way in your opinion to do it? Because like from a professional perspective, like. If you're in a job, like you're still obligated if you are under contract or you're an employee to fulfill the your your responsibilities at that at that job. And you can't just say, I don't feel like coming in because I'm burned out. Mm-hmm. Or you can't just 
you know, continue to cancel on a friend and, and without much of an explanation and expect them to just keep coming around. So like, what's the, what's the proper way if, if somebody needs to create some more space in their calendar, whether it be with, with work or even with something personally so that they can um, continue to maintain that, that relationship. Well, one thing that can be helpful as sort of like a precursor is to establish rules for yourself. So my co-author Liz, she's really firm about having rules for herself where she says, I don't, I have one weekend day where I don't do any, I don't make any plans. So I don't see, I mean, you know, like she might like, you know, go for a walk or go to a bakery or something like that, but she doesn't see anyone and she doesn't take any work calls and she doesn't do any work. And that sounds like you know, sort of bare minimum, but I think many of us don't have that. I certainly don't always do that for myself where it's like one weekend day um, where I don't do anything. And then she says, I'm not going to do anything socially three nights a week, or I'm not going to do any like extracurriculars three nights a week. And then that's easier for her to say no, because she's just like, you know, and and she's done this to me. Like I will have visited her in San Francisco and you know, I'll be like, do you want to come out to dinner with some, you know, friends of ours? And she'll be like, no, it's Monday. I don't do anything on Monday night. So that it's not personal. It's just like, that's my rule for myself. And I think people actually really respect that. And it's a good like model. And people are like, oh, I should do that too. Like (laughs) I need to draw better boundaries myself. Um, So being open about it up front. So you're not having to commit to those things and then like, you know, not showing up to them. But in a work context, yeah, it is hard. And there's some meetings where you're not going to be able to do that. But I think flipping your perspective around and saying to yourself, you know, like if I was my boss or if I was someone else's boss and they were trying to get as much done as I'm trying to get done in a week, would they be okay with me pushing this meeting to the next week or me pushing this priority to the next week? Usually the answer is going to be like, yeah, of course. We're so much harder on ourselves where we're like, these are the five things that I need to get done this week because I say so. (laughs) And um, we, you know, we put a ton of pressure on ourselves. And I think the other thing to remember is that you're not going to be helpful to anyone if you're burned out. And so like in the short term, sure, maybe your boss would prefer that you didn't push that out. But you know what your boss definitely would not prefer is you quitting in two months or you having to go on leave because you're so burned out that you can't do your work. And so it's having to take care of ourselves. And and as adults, and we say this in the book, we wish that there was someone else who would draw our lines for us. So we wish that our boss or our partner or a parent or, you know, somebody would say like, hey, you look really busy this week. Like you should cancel some of those things. No one's going to do that, unfortunately. We're the only ones who can do that for ourselves. So we, we have to get better about it. And I do think that like the it's a muscle. And once you you do it, and I've, I've been working on this for myself, like once you get better at it, it's okay. And you see like, oh, what's in the end of the world that I moved that meeting? It was totally fine. Yeah. Like, absolutely. It's about being proactive and taking care of yourself and, and putting yourself first. Because like you said, if you're useless to yourself, you're going to be useless to other people. What's fascinating to me about all these feelings is that they're, they're so intertwined. And specifically when it comes to burnout, like it's easy to say, okay, when you're feeling burned out, like do these things, you know, go get a massage, go for a hike, take some more space in your calendar. But if you don't deal with your unhealthy relationship to comparison or your unhealthy mm-hmm. relationship to uncertainty, like you're going to continue the cycle because what happened, like, why do a lot of people get burned out? Because they're uncertain of what their finances are going to look like or what the future is going to hold. So they work, 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 or they, uh, you know, they're comparing themselves to their boss or to another uh, person in their profession they see online. So they're going to work, 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 work. Right. So your goal of the book isn't just to only work on like 
one or two of these emotions. Like your goal is to work on all of these feelings because they all go together. I mean, am I, am I correct? You are so correct. Yes. And it was, <laughs> even when we were writing it, we were like, all oh, these things are so overlapping. Um, yeah. And it is really hard to distinguish them because they're multifactorial. And so, yes, it's not it's not just about working on your calendar. It's also dealing with that sense of like, oh, I'm not a worthy person if I you know, don't work 80 hours a week because you're comparing yourself against someone else and you're getting a lot of your self-worth through through work. I mean, it's it's all connected and. And, you know, the the thing I'll say about that is it can feel overwhelming and it's not like you have to work on all these things immediately and, you know, have a timeline for yourself. Like this is a lifelong practice um, and there's going to be some things that you feel like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling with anger right now. So that's the one that I want to focus on, you know, for this year, this month. Um, and there's a, I, I'm, I'm a part of a, a temple and I know you often have talked about the importance of faith in your work too. And one of the things that was helpful for me is we everyone in this like sort of study session that that I was in we picked a quality that we wanted to work on for a year so i worked on patience for a year and there was a woman who said yeah i worked on patience for 3 years <laughs> i was like yeah like that makes sense like these things take time um but you know so sort of giving yourself the space and the time and and knowing that this none of these things are going to be instant fixes as you said we want the magic bullet to deal with our anger our uncertainty our burnout and that just doesn't exist patience could have been like a bonus chapter right because <laughs> i think i think part of it too is we live in this instant gratification world where we want everything right now we want to find out information right now and i think part of it is just with technology we're able to see things a lot faster than we did so we're expecting to get results like a lot quicker than normal. Like, I mean, I, I've talked, I talk about this a lot. Like as far as comparison goes, like it's, it's in front of us front and center every single day. If you are accessing social media, if you're on the internet, um, if you're perusing online or whatever way you're doing that, where you're able to see, like if somebody got married, if somebody's having a kid, they bought a house, they got a new car, like you name it. But back in the day, like before social media and technology, like you wouldn't know somebody had a baby unless yeah. like maybe like one of your friends happened to like randomly call you, but you wouldn't, they wouldn't call you about some random person that you weren't close with. Or you see somebody at the grocery store, like five years later, you're at a high school reunion. Like that was the point. That was the purpose of like the high school yes. reunion was to see people you hadn't seen in like 10 years. Right. But now it's, and you it's, could choose to go or not to go. <laughs> exactly. And it's, and now it's front and center. And I think that has, kind of spilled over into other areas of our life. I mean, if you think about like when I used to deliver pizza when I was a teenager and in order to like find the house I was going to, I had to like open up a map and be like, all right, I have to go down here, <laughs> make a right, go left. And it would take me some time to do it. And I had to pay attention to where I'm going. Well, now it's like, all right, I can plug in like Waze or Google Maps on my phone. I, it, it pulls up and at my directions within like 30 seconds. I can, you know, put my phone down. It'll tell me where I'm going. I can listen to a voice. And then while I'm doing that, I can, um, you know, listen to a book. I can do all these things. And it's just, we're in this different world now that I think has created so many more challenges when it comes to these feelings you talk about in the book. So that's why I think it's so much more important for people to take some time and go through this book super slow. Don't just, this isn't a book you just want to skim through. This is a book where you want to like take out a pad and paper, maybe go through a chapter a week, maybe go through a chapter a month, like whatever it is and do the work that 
is is really portrayed in this book so that like you can really take your emotional like well-being to the next level. Thank you. Yes, and I've heard that several people have said that like I needed time to digest parts of this book. It's 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 a pretty dense book by my own omission. So um yes, absolutely. I I totally agree with all of that and and just to go back to the social media thing for a second. I mean, it, it's amazing. So when I when I took Instagram off my phone for like 6 months, um you know, I would go on on my laptop like occasionally like if I needed to look something up or something like that. And so you always see then like, you know, the first couple things on your, you know, home screen. And I was amazed at how long those things stayed with me. So it was like, yeah, somebody from my high school who I have not talked to since I was 18 had a baby. And I, it's like that I'm thinking about that person for like a week and they're like in my dreams. And I'm like, this is so strange. And I think it was because I didn't have that like constant, like, you know, going through and seeing everyone that I was like, wow, the power of these images, like I'm like with them inside their home, seeing their baby, you know, on their couch or whatever it is. Like, it's very strange. Um, so I, I appreciate you bringing that up. We're, we've all become very accustomed to that, but that's a very modern thing. Yeah, you're right. But I think we just because we put, I mean, and I think this is just a lot of people, we put so much value in, in social media and what people are doing that now, that person that you hadn't seen in so long, like it has much more of an impact on you today because of the attachment and relationship that you had or have in that moment with, with social media and how like the level of importance it is. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, well, this has been awesome. And, and you're right. Like the book has been, the book is very like deep and I started it on audible and I was like, I got to read this. So I just bought, mm. I bought the book too, because like Thank some you. books I can just kind of cruise through on audible at like, two speed or three speed and you know if i'm trying to just get through and but this one i was like i didn't and that's why i said like this is not a book you can just skim like you need to like read it so with that said this has been incredible i think people are going to get a lot out of our conversation just from a tactical side of things a vulnerability side of things um and they're going to want to get the book so if people want to get the book um and they want to follow again like your liz and molly page on instagram don't forget which is a a great page for people to to check out and where you talk about a lot of the stuff you talk about in the book, like where's the best place for people to connect with you and all that stuff? Yeah. Um, so we are on Instagram. It's Liz and Molly, Molly with an IE. And our website is lizandmolly.com. And you can find the book on Amazon or wherever books are sold. It's called Big Feelings and it came out in April. Amazing. Well, I will make sure to um, plug all that stuff in the show notes so that'll have the links thank you to uh your social media and then also to get the book and um, for those listening what i invite you to do is to share a takeaway and maybe it was something that molly said at the beginning in her own like personal story of overcoming adversity and and writing the book maybe it was something that we, we talked about when it came to uncertainty or maybe it was something that we uh discussed as far as comparison or maybe it was just something we just talked about when it comes to uh, burnout, whatever it was, share the takeaway, tag the Liz and Molly page and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.